0: section twenty one of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter eight pompey part one in cato we have had to deal with a man who should have been born in an earlier age who knew it and who went through life with his eyes open fighting against the inevitable, though he knew that it must come in spite of all his striving. Now we have to survey a still more unhappy and pathetic career, that of a man who did not even know the signs of the times and went on blindly seeking, he did not quite know what, and doing infinite mischief, just because he did not know what he wanted. There have been, alike in ancient and in modern history, great generals who were also great statesmen, for good or for evil, like Caesar or Frederick the Great or Napoleon. There have also been great generals to whom all insight into the verities of contemporary politics was denied, and who yet insisted upon interfering in them, and found it easy to do. For the multitude is always prone to credit great generals with universal genius and statecraft, just as it is equally prone to credit great orators with the same faculty for it seems to be easy to forget that excellence in strategy and in oratory are about equally remote in character from excellence in statesmanship cicero or burke not to mention more modern names cut poor figures as practical politicians but even more pathetically futile are the great men of war who have been put at the head of the state by their admirers and have gone astray in the forum the best example in modern times is probably our own wellington whose mismanagement had no mean part in bringing england to the edge of that revolution which she only escaped by the great reform bill of eighteen thirty two the best example in ancient history is undoubtedly gnaeus pompeius magnus three times the potential master of rome who thrice refused to lay firm hold of the helm that was thrust into his grasp and yet could never quite keep his fingers from itching to handle it never did a man's virtues combine more fatally with his weaker qualities to bring about not only his own ruin but the wreck of his country a sternly stoical and self-repressing pompey would have crushed down the ambition in his heart and steeled himself to despise any misrepresentation and injustice that fell to his lot, like Phocion of old. He would have done the Republic no harm, though he might not have proved its saviour. On the other hand, a purely self-seeking and unscrupulous Pompey would have been able to seize the control of the State with ease, and might have tried whatsoever constitutional experiments he pleased. Perhaps the Republic might have fared none the worse if he had done so, he might have become its ruler without the civil war which caesar had to face his opportunities were far better than those of caesar for gaining supreme power without having to wade to the throne through oceans of roman blood but pompey was neither wholly unselfish nor wholly unscrupulous hence it came to pass that he took neither of the alternative paths but fidgeted about between the two sometimes obeying the impulse of ambition sometimes that of loyalty so that all his actions seem incoherent and inconsequent and the general trend of his career appears both destructive to the constitution and disastrous to himself yet it is hard to grow very indignant with him his personal virtues were too conspicuous and his character too far above the level of the other romans of his time he was so ungratefully treated by those he fain would have served, and his final end was so piteous, that we are forced to shut our eyes to the mischief, mostly unintentional, which he did, and to view his whole life with sympathy rather than with impatience. It is hardly necessary to say that Momsen's estimate of Pompey is no more to be taken seriously than his estimates of Cicero or Cato or Caesar it is as misleading to treat him as a mere drill-sergeant as it is to call cicero a fluent consular or cato a mere don quixote or caesar a beneficent and unselfish saviour of society he was in reality no military pedant but an excellent general and organizer in war he fared well save when he came in contact with the two men of first-rate military genius who crossed his path sertorius and caesar against them he fought not ingloriously till the fatal day at pharsalas when he for the first time met with complete disaster ruined not so much by his own fault as by the rashness of his officers and the inexperience of his men but it was not so much as a soldier that pompey appeals to the student of those last troublous days in that time of corrupt and degenerate romans It is a relief to come upon a leading man who is neither a profligate nor an unscrupulous adventurer. Pompey's private life was worthy of the old times of the Republic, for its modesty, honesty, and purity. No one ever accused him of greed, of debauchery, or of malevolence. He was the slowest man at asking and the readiest at giving in Rome, says Plutarch. Nor was he merely honest and upright. He also possessed the virtue rare above all others in that age of humanity shown not only to fellow-citizens but even to foreigners and enemies in all his eastern and his western campaigns one of the most remarkable points is his habitual kindliness and moderation to the vanquished not only open foes but even outcasts like the pirates of cilicia found in him a merciful conqueror Any other man would have crucified those robbers along the coasts which they had plundered. Pompey turned them into colonists in his new cities in the Isaurian region, where, strangely enough, they repaid his confidence by turning out good settlers. Even the Jews, whose feelings he had outraged by forcing his way into the Holy of Holies at Jerusalem, speak nothing of him but good of all roman conquerors he was undoubtedly the most just and merciful he had not like his rival caesar huge stains of massacre upon his reputation such as the execution of the senate of the veneti or the treacherous slaughter of four hundred and thirty thousand usipetes and tincturae he would have been wholly incapable of that worst act of all the saving in prison for six years of such a gallant enemy as Vercingetorix, in order that he might be duly led in chains and put to death in the Tullianum, when his callous victor's long delayed triumph should take place. No one ever could accuse Pompey of deliberate and cold-blooded cruelty of such a cast as this. The only captives that Pompey ever slew were Romans and traitors, men whom it might have been profitable to spare as caesar might very possibly have done but whose crimes he thought too great for pardon we shall have to tell the story of the deaths of carbo of brutus and of propenna in their proper places gnaeus pompeius was born in B.C. 106. he was the son of gnaeus pompeius strabo a man of equestrian rank who had first of his house raised himself to consular office by his military achievements in the great social war with the revolted italians thus pompey though not a novus homo himself was the son of one their family seems to have been for some time settled in Picenum, where we find both the father and his son after him exercising great local influence strabo though a man of good abilities had a sinister reputation he played a rather equivocal part in the first year of the civil strife between the optimates and the marians he was more than suspected of having been privy to the murder of his rival pompeius rufus in a military sedition when he finally espoused the side of the senate it was mainly because he was forced to do so since he could no longer play fast and loose with both parties he died in the middle of the war b c 87 while commanding for the senate against marius and cinna we are told that his own soldiers who wished to join the democrats conspired against him and that his life was only saved by his son's courage and vigilance but a few days after he is said to have been struck dead by lightning in his tent knowing that his men were plotting against him and that they actually tore his body from the bier and dishonoured it we shall perhaps not be wrong in substituting was murdered for was killed by lightning there are other cases in roman history of unpopular generals are said to have met their death from a thunderbolt and all are equally suspicious strabo's son gnaeus the younger was marked out for slaughter by the marians as his father's heir though he had only reached the age of nineteen for some months he concealed himself but after marius's death when the massacre was dying down he was discovered and indicted by the minions of cinna on a charge which might have proved fatal if the praetor antistius a powerful man at the moment had not protected him and saved him on the condition that he should marry his daughter Antistia, thus preserved the young man was able to remain safe but obscure till the year b c eighty three when sulla landed in italy to attack the democrats it was then that the future triumvir first showed the stuff that was in him hastening to his father's native district of picanum he raised a considerable body of followers before anyone else in Italy had taken arms for the optimate cause. He displayed extraordinary vigour and ability for one so young and so new to command. With very inferior forces he kept in check a large Marian corps, while Sulla was contending in Campania with the main body of the enemy. He defeated the Praetors Brutus and Corinus, and finally cut his way south and joined Sulla, at the head of an army which had swelled to no less than three legions all the other optimate refugees had come to sulla empty-handed pompey brought twelve thousand men already tried in war and enthusiastically devoted to their commander italy had never before seen such a force raised by a private person a young man who had just reached the age of twenty-four it was only natural that the optimate chief honoured pompey more than any other man of his party saluted him as imperator and gave him precedence over all his other officers though he was technically no more than a simple knight and was barely qualified by his age to stand for the quaestorship in the later years of the civil war pompey won a reputation which was approached only by those of crassus and Ofella, and he was trusted far more than either of his rivals by sulla As a shrewd judge of character, the dictator could see that the young man, whatever his faults, was at least honest. Hence it came that when the flames had died down in Italy, he, rather than any other officer, was entrusted with the important task of rooting out the Democrats from Sicily and Africa. Though given but a small army, he accomplished his work with extraordinary vigour and skill, and a not less notable humanity. Sulla's legions did not always shine in the matter of consideration for provincials. They had been trained by their chief to regard anything as permissible. It is all the more creditable to Pompey that he kept them in such order that no town in Sicily was sacked, nor any of the inhabitants harmed. He is said by Plutarch to have actually caused his soldiers' swords to be sealed down in their sheaths after the fighting was over, that they might not use them against the Sicilians, but this odd statement looks like a translation into prosaic fact of some rhetorical flourish which the simple boeotian had read in a panegyric of pompey. Crossing from Sicily to Africa, the young general easily routed Domitius and the large democratic army which held that province. In a few weeks it was completely subdued. Only one man's life taken in cold blood marred the luster of these triumphs. The single person whom Pompey executed was the leader of the whole democratic party, Carbo, who fell into his hands in the isle of Pandetaria, halfway between Sicily and Africa. On Carbo's head lay the responsibility for the whole of the late massacres in Rome, and Pompey owed him the personal grudge that in that slaughter had fallen his father-in-law, Antistius, the friendly praetor who had saved him in B.C. 87. Moreover, the ex-consul was an outlaw by the decree of the people and the chief of all Sulla's enemies. It was probably kinder in the end to slay him on the spot than to send him to Rome to face Sulla's wrath and to suffer some elaborate punishment for his misdoings. But we may share with Pompey's friends of that day the regret that he took a part in the execution of even such an unpardonable enemy of the optimate cause as Carbo on returning to rome victorious in b c 81 pompey was granted a triumph by sulla though he was still technically a private person for he was an eques, not a senator and held no office but that of legatus to the dictator this is said to have been the only case in roman history in which a triumph was granted to one who had never held any magistracy whatever sulla had not failed to note that his young lieutenant would be too much elated by his splendid position to bow readily to the new regime it was a great thing to ask of one who had a victorious army at his back that he should step down from his triumphal car to take a modest place among the younger optimates but though pompey was not destitute of ambition he had from his earliest youth a singular dislike for violence and illegality he duly disbanded his army and settled down in rome as a private person without making much ado this so much pleased the dictator that he saluted him by the name of the great magnus the only cognomen which he ever bore since he never took his father's unflattering name of strabo the cross-eyed having once convinced himself that the young general could be trusted sulla allowed him liberties which he granted to no one else not only did he concede him his abnormal triumph but he even allowed him to support for the consulship of b c 78 the vain and heady marcus aemilius lepidus, a man whom rightly enough he distrusted. He did not interfere with the canvas, but merely warned Pompey that he had acted with grave unwisdom. You are proud of your victory, he said, as the train of the new consul swept through the forum, but be on your guard. You have used your influence and popularity to put a worthless man in power thereby you have raised up an adversary and made him stronger than yourself Lepidus's subsequent conduct entirely justified the dictator's forecast but it must be confessed that Pompey's political judgments all through his life were invariably ill-advised this support of Lepidus was but the first of a long series of mistakes after Sulla's death in 78, the new Consul, freed from the wholesome restraint of fear which lay upon every ambitious man who remembered the fate of Ophella, broke out in open revolt against the Constitution. He came forward with a program of public bankruptcy, no tabulae combined with the restoration of the democratic Constitution. To back his reckless schemes, he secretly raised an army of outlaws and swashbucklers in Etruria. Pompey had to take arms against the man whom he had so unwisely placed in power. He was given an army to clear the east coast of Italy and Cisalpine Gaul of the insurgents, while Catullus dealt with the main body and the rebellious consul himself. How the latter was routed in the campus Martius when he made his reckless assault on the capital we need not again relate. Pompey was at the moment in the north, dealing with lepidus's lieutenant marcus brutus the father of the tyrannicide of b c forty four after beating him in the open field he shut him up in mutina and pressed him so hard that he surrendered in order to prevent his own army from delivering him over to the besiegers in spite of this voluntary submission of the democratic chief pompey after a day's hesitation put him to death and with him aemilianus the son of lepidus This was, of all Pompey's doings, the one that was most criticized during his lifetime. He had accepted the surrender of Brutus, spared his life, and sent him away in custody. Then, on mature reflection, and after composing a dispatch to the Senate, in which he announced the capture of Mutina, he put to death his prisoners in cold blood. No one could dispute that Lepidus and all his crew were public enemies, so that there was no formal illegality in the act, but it was felt that if Pompey had intended to slay the democratic leaders, he ought not to have received them to surrender. It would have been better for his reputation if he had sent them to Rome and allowed the Senate to do its own killing. It was true that the prisoners were factious traitors who had stirred up a wholly unnecessary civil war, but if Pompey felt such righteous indignation against them that he was constrained to put them to death, it was unfortunate that only seven years later he should himself introduce and carry through several of these same democratic reforms which Lepidus and his followers suffered for supporting. B.C. 77. For the second time Pompey now stood victorious in Italy with a large army at his back. In spite of the unswerving loyalty to the optimate cause which he had hitherto displayed, the Senate felt uncomfortable with such a stirring and capable general at their gates. It was with considerable relief therefore that they heard that he was not unwilling to undertake a new military commission which would remove him far from the capital he wished to be given the charge of the difficult and dangerous war against Sertorius in Spain which had been in progress ever since Sulla drove the democrats out of Italy 5 years before Metellus the best general of the old optimate ring had been striving against the great guerrilla chief with indifferent success if without actual disaster there was no one else to send against him least of all did the consuls of the year show any wish to set out upon such an uninviting errand we must dispatch pompey to spain said the witty lucius philippus non proconsule. said proconsulibus. doubtless the more suspicious members of the oligarchy muttered to each other that if pompey slew sertorius the state was freed from a great public danger while if sertorius slew or foiled pompey there was at least a dangerous pretender removed from the political stage so the young general was duly assigned the province of hither spain and permitted to march forth from italy taking with him the army which had subdued the cisalpine rebels and captured mutina troubles in gaul delayed his march and it was not till the spring of b c 76 that he reached the pyrenees there to find that sertorius was in possession of the greater part of the iberian peninsula the tribes of the northeast were still faithful as were most of the coast cities on the mediterranean but metellus was fighting an uphill battle in Baetica, and over the whole of the interior and the western parts of the two provinces sertorius reigned supreme the fact was that the spanish war was no longer a struggle between the two roman parties nor a prolongation of the old contest in italy between democrat and optimate it was much more like a national rising of the greater number of the iberian tribes to recover their ancient independence the old program of marius and cinna had nothing in it to attract the spaniards and sertorius was not fighting for that outworn creed he was sustained by his personal ambition and his determination not to submit to the oligarchy it was as a spanish chief not as a roman proprietor that he was now strong the italian element in his host was daily growing less the native element more preponderant the war was becoming an attempt led by a man of genius to found a new romano-spanish national state If Sertorius was not yet wholly successful, it was because the ancestral feuds of the Celti-Iberian tribes always supplied his enemies with a considerable following of native supporters. Yet their number was daily growing less, as the loyal states of the interior, unsuccored by the arms of Metellus, fell one after another into the hands of the great guerrilla chief spain was already the land in which to quote the epigram of a great general of the modern world large armies starve and small armies get beaten pompey found that he had undertaken no easy task when he looked on the boundless arid plains and the rugged sierras over which the bands of sertorius were roving how was he to deal with an enemy who moved twice as fast as the heavily loaded legion who knew every pass and ravine, who dispersed when beaten, yet assembled within a few days to fall upon the victors' flanks and rear. The army of the rebels, it was said, was like one of their own rivers. At one moment Sertorius would be wandering lost in the plains with a handful of followers like a meagre July stream. At the next, like the same stream after rain, he would be dashing along, swollen by countless fierce affluents from the mountains, almost irresistible with one hundred and fifty thousand spears at his back for five years the weary struggle with the spaniards continued b c seventy six to seventy two amid many alternations of fortune if pompey had hoped to win an easy triumph over enemies no more formidable than those he had encountered in italy and africa he must have been disappointed many times he was foiled once he was defeated in open fight on another occasion he owed it to the arrival of his colleague metellus that he ended the day with a drawn battle instead of a defeat but his spirit never failed nor did his legions waver from their belief in him the senate supported him badly as might have been expected there was a moment when the pay of his soldiers was two years in arrear and when he had used up the greater part of his private fortune in making advances to his loyal followers but in spite of the neglect of the home government the difficulty of the country and the unrivalled mixture of craft and courage displayed by his adversary he worked on slowly towards his end many historians have sneered at pompey's management of the war and have hinted that a general of ordinary capacity would have brought it to a much earlier end without any of the unfortunate incidents that chequered its earlier years we who have learnt of late what guerilla warfare means shall be loath to condemn him when we reflect on the superior numbers of his enemies on the character of his troops almost entirely infantry and on the slack way in which he was supported from home he never despaired even when the struggle had dragged on for four years he slowly drove back sertorius into the inland when at last that great man fell by the hands of his own discontented followers he brought the war to a sudden end in a few months. It would have ceased long before if the rebels had not possessed such a splendid leader. Perpenna, the double traitor who had murdered Sertorius, fell into Pompey's hands in the last decisive battle. To save his life, even for a few days, he offered to place in his captors' hands the private correspondence of his late chief, containing many letters of the most compromising sort from prominent men at Rome. Pompey burnt the papers unread and consigned Perpenna to the headsman. He might have crushed the malcontents by producing their treasonable correspondence, or have made them his humble servants by threatening to divulge the documents if they thwarted him. But such methods were far from his honest mind. End of section 21.